The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. according to its own rules, including those worlds of which we have experience ourselves. But how can the strictures of such a world be turned to one's advantage, even when they are designed to bring out the worst in us? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and Vessi, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's discussion focuses on the 2003 satirical comedy drama Buffalo Soldiers, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Anna Paquin, Scott Glenn, and Ed Harris, and my guest is Dan Whitehead, who joins me via special telephone. Hello, Dan. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, indeed. So what can you tell me about Buffalo Soldiers? Buffalo Soldiers. Well, this is a film that technically came out in 2001, but wasn't actually released until 2003. Um, It's a sort of satirical crime comedy drama um, set on a US military base in uh, West Germany in 1989. Uh, with uh, Joaquin Phoenix as a uh, sort of uh, staff secretary on the base, who is, is basically a very dark remake of Bilko. That was that that was my feeling as well. That this is Bilko crossed with Train Spotting. Yes, yeah, he he kind of um, puts up with the the boredom and sort of inertia of just being stuck on this army base when nothing's going on. The Cold War's coming to an end, and he he refines heroin and sells it. He steals cleaning products and sells them on the black market um you know he basically hustles and does whatever he can to make a bit of money and stop himself being bored to death really it uh it it debuted at the toronto film festival uh in 2001 and then three days later it was 9-11 and suddenly distributors were a little less interested in selling a film about american soldiers being terrible drug addicts and grifters um, so it sat on the shelf for a good few years and eventually came out in, in 2003. That was uh, when I saw it. I actually watched it in the cinema when it was first released, bless you. Um, and uh, I recall it had a bit of uh, a bit of coverage when it was coming out because of the, the backstory to it, the fact that it had been sold um, to the distributor on the 10th of September. Mm. Um and then immediately became unusable. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a weird one because, I mean, by the time it came out, um, things like Three Kings... Um, I'm trying to think when Jarhead... Was Jarhead 2005? I think it was. But by the time it came out, the kind of... The sort of disillusionment following 9-11 and the uh, start of the Second Gulf War was obviously a bit more 
um, kind of in the public consciousness, so all of a sudden it was timely. But there were sort of several other films kind of doing the same thing around that time. So I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle a bit there. Well, Three Kings was 1999. Of course it was, yeah. yeah. So that was that was at a time where uh, criticism of the military was still a mainstream occupation. Yeah. But um, I, I saw the film when it came out, and I liked it very much, particularly as I'm myself a forces brat and, there were, and, and lived in Germany at the time that the film was set okay. and frequented American military bases. So there were bits of it that I recognised from personal experience. I also read the book sometime later by Robert O'Connor, mm-hmm. and the book is much, much darker than the film. Right. Elwood is explicitly a heroin addict as well as a dealer. Right. And during the course of the movie, he gets his girlfriend addicted as well, and it ends with his death. So a bit of a change there, then. Yeah. I think lightening it up and ma- making him not quite a rascal, but... Uh, a charming rogue, more of a, uh, a a private walker than a Renton, I think was was quite a good idea. I think from an entertainment point of view, definitely, yeah, because it's a it's a ridiculously entertaining film. Um, there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot of sort of subplots and different threads that all kind of come together. Um, so I mean, we should probably talk a little bit about what the story actually involves. I mean, he's, he's this sort of grifter working on the army base. Um, the, the, um, the sergeant in charge of the base, Colonel Berman, played by Ed Harris, is kind of um, ineffectual it, and grown a bit lazy uh, through his activity. He's in charge of the supply depot. Yeah. So it's, and it's a supply depot in peacetime, so he really doesn't need to do anything, <laughs> but, he, but he has ambitions of uh, making it to general, his wife is um, hungry for him to uh, ascend as well. Mm. Wh- while his wife is also having an affair with Elwood. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's a great part for Ed Harris because it's kind of the complete opposite of the the kind of roles he's known for. He's, he's played lots of kind of hard-headed military men, and here he is well, playing he... a kind of soft-headed military man, which is really fascinating, fun to see. Well, he was originally. Um, sent the script with a view to playing um, Top, the the sergeant, because that's a very typically Ed Harris character. But he replied that he's actually more interested in, in this Colonel character, this sort of completely unsuited to military life, mm. very pleasant, amiable officer um, who bumbles his way through dinner parties and official functions. That is completely oblivious to what Elwood is doing right under his nose. Yeah, El- Elwood positions himself as the model soldier, and you know the uh, the uh, the confidant and Batman to the Colonel, mm. whilst <laughs> stealing the supplies and sleeping with his wife. Yeah, um... and and he, and even at the end, where Berman is, be- you know, he's going to be pensioned off. Elwood says, you know, he he's going to get exactly what he wanted. He's going to buy buy that vineyard he he wanted. I, I'm doing him a favour. Yeah, which is kind of weirdly like. Um... Like the end of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where people kind of say, "Well, Ferris had to um, trash his friend's dad's car in order to force his friend, whose name I've completely forgotten, um, Cameron Fry, Cameron Fry, out of his out of his comfort zone." You know, that was what he needed. He needed this kind of uh, chaotic, uh, sort of um, mischievous 
sprite character to kind of Ooh. turn his life upside down so he could move on and kind of get the same feeling with Colonel Berman. He needs Elwood's schemes to fall apart in order for well, to get out of the military and do what he always wanted to do. Well, here's a, here's a good tangent to start with. This film is set three years after Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. Could Elwood not perhaps be Ferris himself? <laughs> could you could you could you sit that he's got all his little little hustles and and trickery and he's having, he's had to join the army mm. and now he's and now Ferris is involved with heroin dealers in Germany. That is possible. I have I have a friend who actually said that Ferris Bueller probably grew up to be like the CEO of Enron or something like that. Um, but I could definitely see him. I don't. I think military life would be a bit too much effort for Ferris to be honest with you. Um, but I mean, Elwood is is only in the military because it was a choice between that or prison. His, but everything about his military career is basically shady and lethargic. But he was uh, the choice was six months in prison or three years in the army, and he now realizes that he should have done the prison time. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think he probably got a hell of a lot more out of three years in the army. He's uh, he's driving a, a Mercedes, is it? And uh... it's uh, yeah. Well, as as he says, Mercedes are very easy to come by in Germany because that they're they're a domestic car. They're all made in the country. They're surprisingly cheap. When I was there, literally everyone had a Mercedes. But he's he's still he's not exactly um, discreet with showing off the uh, the spoils of his dodgy activities. He's, you know, and his friend um, played by Michael Pena, he's he's like rocking a Rolex and things like that. So when um, Scott Glenn's uh, top sergeant turns up, he immediately clocks this bunch as a you know they're on the take, they're, they're you know working the black market and selling god knows what exactly well the film starts with a dream sequence mm. um where elwood dreams of falling like a like a bomb out of a plane and falling through the sky and crashing into the ground and he says later that he always dreams of falling mm. and it's the one thing he's scared of and uh his girlfriend says well yeah everyone has those dreams but they always wake up before they hit the ground and he says oh i never do mm. and that's meant to foreshadowing but it's kind of double foreshadowing because he jumps from the diving board mm. and also falling from the window at the end is the thing that saves him yes but in the book it's the thing that kills him oh, okay because sard and the other uh, mps have stuffed him in a locker and shoved him out of the vo- out of a window <laughs> and he's and he's narrating the entire story as he plummets to the ground to his death ah got you okay so he's shoved into a locker just like high school <laughs> So his girlfriend is the daughter of uh, his new top sergeant, the uh, the kind of hard-edged, take-no-nonsense uh, Scott Glenn character. Um, so even there, he's you know he's sort of running into the fire a bit. And uh, the, we first see Elwood. He's watching other members of the uh, squad messing around in the games room mm. and play, playing a game of indoor football. Which is obviously an incredibly safe thing to do, <laughs> except one of the squad is one of Elwood's uh, buyers and has just um, shot himself up. <laughs> and as as he gets involved in the the football scrum, he smashes his head on the corner of a table and is instantly killed. And it's really nasty as well. It's a really brutal moment. It's it's the vivid image I have from the first time I saw this film years and years and years ago. Was I was like, this is the movie where the guy bashes his head on the table and it's horrible. Yeah, you can you feel it in your oh god. Um, so but that that so, guy using the heroin is kind of 
pivotal really because that's the heroine he's supposed to be selling on behalf of Saad who is the uh, sort of leader of the military police on the base who's also crooked uh, that in turn leads him into sort of conflict with local gangsters uh, which he then has to try and make right um, there's a tank crew who are also off the faces on his heroine who drive off the training ground and well we're, 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 get, we're, we're running ahead of ourselves I think a little bit <laughs> well they have to um, cover up the circumstances of the soldier's death so they lug his body up to the roof and push it off yes. and say oh he was he was up there adjusting an aerial and he fell except they do an autopsy and discover that he's full of every single drug he's been able to get his hands on including the birth control pill yes <laughs> and um as Elwood, Elwood has a voiceover narration all the way through, and he says that life is about distractions, and that when you're a soldier in peacetime and you have nothing to do, war is hell, but peace is fucking boring. Yeah. And as the body's being thrown out of the, the roof, you can see children in the foreground playing with little military toys, little toy tanks. Mm. And I think, yeah, just training up the next generation there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... it's um... It's not subtle in its critique of, of sort of military necessity, I suppose. But it's the, mili- the military mind. Yeah, yeah, the kind of the the realities of of what it's like, rather than the sort of whiz bang war movie type stuff. As you say, um, Saad is the head of the military police. He's also the head. He's also the head of the drug ring. And as Elwood says, there are two types of people in the military. There are the motherfuckers and the motherfucked. <laughs> Saad is the third kind. He is he fucks the motherfuckers, and as you say, he's crooked too. But Elwood is not violent. He's just out to make money and not get caught. Saad and his squad are dangerous. Yeah, they're they're. um, I mean, they're not a huge part of the story. In the sense, they're just kind of like a lingering threat in the background until sort of later in the story, where they they kind of come into their own and provide the. The sort of physical threat that really kicks things up in the sort of final act. It kind of where the the comedy kind of drops away a bit, and it kind of goes from from farce to tragedy. But it's we're, we're being introduced to all these various disparate elements of of life on the base. Mm. But over the course of the film, everything very cleverly intertwines together. Yes. And it's I think uh, the film overall is a very I think elegantly constructed. Uh, piece. Every, all, all the little things that don't seem relevant do ve- eventually come together. The fact that the fact that Robin uh, likes to dive is initially just that's just something we see in the background, but it actually has relevance later on. Yeah. Uh, uh, all, all these sort of little elements, I think, pay off very neatly. It, it does a very good trick in that it, it feels for a, quite a long time like a kind of shaggy dog story, where there's just like all these little vignettes and little things going on. Um, just like kind of hanging out with these sort of dodgy characters on this military base but like you say, over time you realise that none of that stuff was there by accident or just for a laugh it all it all ties together and like one domino knocks over another domino until you realise it's actually as kind of constructed like a clockwork heist movie except instead of a heist it's a sort of inevitable collapse of um, Elwood's criminal empire it's like the, it, it is almost like a heist film, except the heist is being committed committed against him. Mm. Yeah, he's he's the one who's being stolen from. Um, You're used to seeing films where like pieces come together, but in this one, things fall apart. But in the sort of clockwork way, yeah. Elwood sells 
the meth to Edward sells the heroin to him, but he cooks it from the raw ingredients, which he buys from a Turkish black marketeer to whom he also sells uh, hundreds of gallons of uh, cleaning product. Yes. And um, the, when he's talking to the general about uh, the colonel, rather about the um, uh, the circumstances of uh, trying to get a promotion, that his wife's bought this antique chair, Elwood steps slightly beyond the boundary of of how one, one can talk to a senior officer. And the colonel says, "Oh, how how dare you talk to me that? I'm a colonel and you're a specialist. Who do you think you are?" Mm. And then there's a pause. And he says, I'm so sorry, Elwood. I shouldn't snap at you like that. <laughs> yeah, and it's it it's it's so weird to see Ed Harris play someone who's so soft. Mm. I mean, that's that's the kind of moment where you think, oh, you know, because because it's Ed Harris, you're thinking, oh, that's where the line's drawn. But it's not. There are no lines drawn with that character. You know, you no. kind of wondering what would actually happen if he found out that Elwood was sleeping with his wife, and he he probably apologised to him. You know, <laughs> he would apologise to Elwood for you know. He'd he'd probably he'd just sort of like pretend it wasn't happening, or just sort of block block it out, or assume that he was mistaken. Yeah, but no, he's he's a he's, he's it's so great to see Ed Harris doing that. Really, um, he's just, he has so much fun with that part, just kind of completely playing against type. It's wonderful. As you say, the uh, the new top sergeant arrives, who's called Robert E. Lee, <laughs> which is yeah, and he's. Very sort of polite and pleasant. Introduces himself to Elwood and um, his pal Garcia, his Garcia and Stony, mm-hmm. and and he say he notices that Garcia is wearing a very nice watch. He says, oh, that's, that's a very nice watch. Oh yeah, I my I got it from my father. Mm-hmm. So oh, really, what does he do? He's a barber. <laughs> now, frankly, Garcia can't be that bright if he's wearing a Rolex while he's on duty. <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of. Um... If for no other reason, it could get broken. Well, you'd th- yeah, I imagine they've probably got a box full of them somewhere. Um, but yeah, no, both um, Garcia and, and Stoney are, are kind of Three Stooges-esque almost. You know, they're just the kind of bumbling sidekicks who could almost be out of an old comedy movie. You know, they're uh, they're they're not they're just following Elwood's wake, really. Yeah, it's that Elwood needs kind of backup and support to help with his his various antics. And neither, ne- apart from that, neither of them are obviously stupid or anything like that. It's just they they should be cleverer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if they were, I, I don't think they'd be following Elwood around. That's the that's the beauty of it. Yeah, they'd probably try and steal his business out from underneath him. It's kind of you kind of wonder were they were they smarter when they signed up, and it's just just their brains have rotted from sitting on this base for months and months and months doing nothing. Well, just because they have nothing to do doesn't mean that they. Wouldn't find you know other outlets. So, you know, the fact that they are essentially enlisted men under the circumstances, they could well be in similar situations to Elwood. They have no particular education. They don't have no real options. So they decided to join the army just because you get you know regular pay and opportunities for uh, business on the side. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, there's a uh, tank exercise going on, mm. and uh, various tanks have gathered in a field near, near, a, near a nearby town, apart from one of the tanks, where the entire crew is stoned or doped, <laughs> or, or sh- shouldn't be in charge of anything with a big gun on the front. No, I wouldn't even put them in charge of a shopping trolley, to be honest with you, they're completely blitzed. 
and they're, they're trying to find their way there, tearing across a field listening to hip-hop, through a town, right through a market, at one point nearly running over an extra. <laughs> they came a hair's breadth from genuinely running over one of the extras. They destroy a Volkswagen Beetle quite brutally. And that, again, looks... That looked a bit too close. I think those extras look genuinely quite scared. (laughs) But then it's, oh, wow, yeah, we squashed a beetle. (laughs) And they're still herring around all over the place. They eventually find their way to a petrol station, and there's a truck coming the other way. The drivers of the truck get out, say, hey, who are you? Where are you going? And and the the driver of the tank says to one of his colleagues, I... I don't like those guys. Oh, let's let's go. Let's leave these guys behind. So they turn and they drive straight over the petrol station, <laughs> uh, and they barely have time to notice that there is petrol spraying everywhere before the entire thing goes up in a giant fireball. And even uh, then, they don't notice. No, they're just <laughs> sitting in the tank, going, "Hey, these." No, they're looking at the monitors, going, "Hey, these mo- these these monitors have gone orange." <laughs> Whilst outside, two charred corpses have been left behind. Yeah, but those they wind up. Those guys are also military from a presumably either the same base but a, a more responsible regiment. Yeah, but they're transporting a shit ton of heavy ordnance. Well, the, the the tank goes straight across the road through a crash barrier through a forest, which had to be specially planted for the production because they weren't allowed to run over real trees. <laughs> And when they come out of the forest on the other side, it's the ta- it's the field full of tanks. So they're right, okay, we're here. <laughs> Just as um, Elwood and his pals come the other way, find the, a field of carnage, two burnt corpses, and a truck full of unattended rifles that they can sell, and not just rifles, grenades, um, rocket rocket launchers, just incredible. And right, well, this this we can sell. Yeah, I mean, it, this it, this is the kind of point where you kind of realise that there's probably something deeply, deeply wrong with Elwood. He's not just a, a bit of a scam artist. He's, you know, he's a sociopath. He's, you know, he's... See, I mean, his reaction when the guy smashes his head on the table is just, hey, you guys, he's dead. But then he comes across two burnt corpses and his first thought is, what's in this van? Not, oh my God, two people have been burnt horribly to death. Well, he's, he acts out of self-interest. I think you're right, but... I think in, in both cases it's well these people are dead and they they they're really dead there's nothing that can be done so why be concerned yeah you know that you know he's he's bashed his brains out on the table these you know these two people are, are turned into barbecue there's nothing we can do you know if if we could save them maybe I'd do something because I don't think he is a complete sociopath because later on he seems to become genuinely um very uh um, emotionally involved with Robin and is genuinely worried about her when he thinks that she might be in danger. I th- it's just that he has a very practical and no-nonsense attitude. Why should I care about these dead bodies? I didn't do it. Yeah. Except, obviously, if it wasn't for him, none of those people would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, that's where you start to see the kind of the, the chain reactions taking place. It's uh, Literally everything that goes wrong in the film stems from the things he's done. None of it is kind of out of his hands but you kind of it's one of those movies you kind of have to look back and go oh yeah well they were stoned because he's selling drugs and then they did this and you know it's it's it doesn't lay it out in a laborious fashion it just kind of very neatly clicks into place mm. um the music score 
in the movies by David Holmes, mm-hmm. and it's it's very sort of Steven Soderberghy, late nineties, early two thousands, cool. Mm. How how did you feel that it um, matched the tone of the movie? I th- I think it did. Um, I mean, the the a lot of the the actually you know the the um, the songs on the soundtrack. The soundtrack album was by Tommy Boy Records, so that's why there's there's hip hop all over it. Um, uh, you know, like Public Enemies on there, De La Soul's on there. So it's, I guess it's kind of playing off against that in a kind of counterintuitive way. It's awkward because I think the music's very sort of cool heist type to Ocean's Eleven music, mm. but the type of crimes that we're that we're watching are, are lead characters involved with. I thought, yeah, like heroin, heroin dealing and gun running aren't quite as cool as robbing a casino. They're not sort of quite as Robin Hoodish as perhaps they're being. Do you think that's deliberate, or do you think that David Holmes thought he was scoring a very different kind of movie? No, I think I think Holmes knew what he was doing. Mm. I think it, I think it's more a kind of maybe it's trying to match the tone to Elwood's self-image. Yeah, that he's he's very cocky and very confident about himself. He talks about the theater, that the uh, the only three things he loves are his Mercedes-Benz, the lack of speed limits on the Autobahn, and the black market for anything he can sell. <laughs> so he thinks he's he's like one cool customer, and the music is reflecting his attitude. That would make sense, given his narration as well, that this is very much a movie from his point of view. Yes, this is this is the way he would tell the story. As, yeah, because as I, as I mentioned, as, as you pointed out, all the terrible things that happen can ultimately be traced back to him. Mm. But but he's never directly responsible for anything. No, no. Like he didn't he didn't you know, tell this tank crew to get high before going on manoeuvres because that would be an insane thing to do. Yeah. And yet they decided to do it anyway. <laughs> he, he enables it all with his you know it's, it's almost like he's the rot that is infecting everything. Exactly, and that's that's what the top objects to. Mm-hmm. Because um, having concealed all the weaponry in the nearby barely used dust caked nuclear bunker <laughs> with a plan to uh, swap it with their um, their dealer for 30 kilos of uh, unrefined opium mm. yeah, he gets back to his plush living quarters to find it being turned over by the top and his men and he's got this he's got a lovely double bed he's got a sofa he's got a fridge he's got a big screen tv what 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 was a state of the art TV for the time? But maybe, oh yeah, that's just a TV. What's wrong with that? But it was obviously a luxury item back then, which is why it's so terrible when uh, the top puts his foot through it as a way of showing this is not not messing about. Yeah, so maybe maybe there's something. Uh, maybe we can work something out, top. You know, we don't we don't we don't need to be in a sense. So you offer me a bribe? Maybe. Okay. Stands up, puts his boot through the TV. Well, and tells me what's the rest of the contraband out of there. Quick smart. Mm-hmm. Um, Elwood's watching Mrs. Colonel at the pool. We never find out uh, Mrs. Berman's first name. No. Th- throughout my notes, he's, I just call her Mrs. Colonel. <laughs> yeah, played by Elizabeth McGovern. Which is, uh... Yeah. And it's it's a small role, but you immediately understand the character. Just just in that first scene where she's hauling this antique chair into the, her husband's office. And he has no real idea why she's bought it. 
and it's 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 just as well because he thinks it's his and he can't understand why someone's trying to deliver this chair to his (laughs) spartan military office and it's this big ornate antique chair and then she said did she say does she say she bought it for him I get the impression that um, she bought it to, so that they could have it in their home, mm. but so but so that guests can look at it and, and marvel at their their taste and uh, yes. their culturedness. Yeah, I mean, she is in a lot of ways not that dissimilar to Elwood. Um, you kind of get the impression that she's sort of trolling the Colonel just as much as he is, um, and what? she probably needles him throughout the day in, in hundreds of ways that he maybe doesn't even notice. I get the feeling she's she uses him as a as a way of social climbing within the military world, which is why she's pushing him to get this promotion. Uh, maybe maybe that's why uh, that she and Elwood are having an affair because they see something in each other, a certain ruthless self interest. Whatever it takes to get ahead. But they're at the pool, and um, uh, she tells him that uh, they've had a lawyer trace the colonel's family tree, and it turns out he's distantly related to. A general John Bell Hood, known as the Iron Boar, who was a general in the uh, Confederate Army during the American Civil War. Mm. Uh, Hood was a real general. Yeah, he was a real historical figure. He wasn't called the Iron Boar. That's entirely made up. <laughs> um, but the shortcomings of his military career later on are entirely accurate. That he was pretty much a disaster. <laughs> Which is why it's perfect that he's related to Berman. I mean, that's and Berman thinks it's this wonderful thing that he can name drop to, you know, impress people, and it's you know, it's it's not because people are just like, well, that guy was a loser. So why are you boasting yeah. about that? I mean, uh, it it did make me think of the American ideas of, about personal ancestry and heritage, and it does strike me as being not entirely dissimilar to feudalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea the idea of being so concerned about one's roots and that conflicting with the uh, the notional idea of a meritocratic society. Mm, yeah, I mean, because it's clear that this sort of tangential relationship to a fairly obscure and, and unloved um, military figure from the past, Berman sees that as his ticket to promotion more than anything he's actually done. Exactly. His actual he's, record is completely unremarkable and not even worth noticing. So he kind of clings, <laughs> he clings to this, you know, this this relationship, this uh, this connection to a, a historical figure as a way of kind of sort of playing with the big boys, I guess. Mm. I mean, he's he's an appalling commanding officer. His unit is riddled with drug addicts <laughs> that he doesn't even notice. Uh, that he does that he's not even aware of. Mm. Um and he commands almost no respect. I mean, Elwood sees him as, you know, almost like a pet that he feels sorry for. Like, a, you know, like a, a shivering dog. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's quite but... sweet because Elwood clearly has affection for him, but that doesn't stop him bleeding him dry and doing all these awful things behind his back. But, you know, there, there is... It's, it's not cruel, it, weirdly. It's not, it's not personal. No. It's just he's a... You know, he... Elwood is a grifter and Berman is a sucker. Yeah. He's the mark who gets taken, you know. It's, that's just the, their roles, you know, wolf and sheep. But in a way, he's not taking him for any more than Berman can withstand losing. Hmm. Yes. But, because at the end of the story, 
Berman's out of the military, but he's going to buy this vineyard and he's going to make his own wine, and it's this little dream he's always had. He's finally going to be able to fulfil it. Mm. And he's better off than almost anyone else at the end of the film because 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 he's finally out of the army. Yeah. This this environment which which we're being told through the entire film breeds the worst kind of people in every way. Yeah. I kind of almost want a prequel movie where you kind of find out what it was that made Berman sign up, you know, what what was his father like? What was his what was he like when he was Elwood's age? What what drove him to kind of think, yes, I'll do this and and how did he get to the rank of colonel? You know, what what did he do to justify that? Well, he might come from a military family mm. because not it can't be that impressive because nobody seems bothered by it. Well, his far his father may well have been a supply colonel as well. I mean, <laughs> is that there's all sorts of avenues in the military to a- achieve high office by doing very little, mm. which I guess is one of the themes of the film, isn't it? Really? Yeah, the uh, top's daughter is also there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's another thing that's um, that they didn't carry over from the book. In the book, she's only got one arm. Okay, but in the film, she's got. Sort of burn marks. She was. Um... Yeah, I think it's. In, I think it's in the film. She's got two. <laughs> it's yes, very, very, very good. Well done. Yeah, she has. She has um, a burn mark from where her father got drunk and dropped a cigarette on her. Yeah, as a child. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not just like a burn mark. It's like a huge, you know, um, scar across her across her torso. Yeah. Um, do you, Do you think I... the role of Robin gives Anna Paquin enough to do? It's. I wouldn't say the character's one note because there are the the very specifically two sides to her. There's the the daughter of the sergeant where she's, you know, a good girl, you know, a good daughter, but also the fact that she turns out to be very much on Elwood's wavelength mm-hmm. when she thinks that his plan to date her just to get back at him is a great idea and then she offers him some ecstasy. Yes. It's ha- she's hamstrung a bit by there being so many characters mm. and there are only two female characters in the whole story yeah. and she's the only, and she's the only one who gets a first name yes i think it's again it's showing the world of this sort of peacetime military that the <laughs> spending a whole life living on military bases um it leaves you perhaps uh, interested in subverting the uh the norm much more so the that any sort of rebellion is going to be more extreme because you're rebelling against the military mindset as a whole rather than just your parents yeah the rules aren't just you know tidy your room it's they're literally rules of you know yeah the military complex it's uh yeah i mean i think the character works because of anna paquin I, yeah. th- I think the same character as written played by someone else maybe wouldn't work as well. I think she brings that it's kind of spark to it that's needed to bring her to life, you know, with, with what little there is. And she was already an Oscar winner by this point, of course. Well, yeah, she was an Oscar winner before she finished school. She, yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to remember. Joaquin Phoenix has an Oscar, does he? Uh, no, he doesn't, does he? No, he doesn't. No, he's he, um, been nominated three times. He's been not. Yes, for uh, Gladi- Gladiator Walk the Line and The Master, is that right? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, uh, Gladiator Supporting Role and Walk the Line and Master. The other two leads. Yes, I don't, th- I don't think any, any of the other cast have won. I know Ed Harris has been nominated. I don't think Scott Glenn has. No. 
Ah. Well, there we are. So, uh, Elwood disconnects something in Robin's car so that the, he then has an excuse to talk to her and, and fix it and ask her out on a date. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's actually a, a, a lovely little bit um, at the swimming pool where um, Mrs. Berman sees Elwood basically drooling over, over Robin uh, as she's diving off the board and there's just this sort of wonderful little moment of sadness that Elizabeth McGovern gives it uh, you know, she doesn't have many lines, she doesn't have many scenes, but in that moment, she kind of just injects a whole lot of character into what could very easily have been a sort of two-dimensional, you know, um, cook-holding wife kind of character. Mm. You know, you kind of sense that she's she's known eventually Elwood would go for someone else. And there's just that little hint of sadness, like she's she's accepting of it, she knows it's going to happen, it has to happen. But there's just that kind of moment of, well, you know, yeah, I'm probably going to end up stuck with, with my husband again now. And it's, it's, it's not spoken, it's just, just all on her face, but it's, it's, a, it's a lovely little moment. Elwood goes back to the colonel's office and um, the colonel tells him about the iron boar. <laughs> and Elwood says, oh, oh, yeah, oh yes, the iron boar, oh, you, you're related to him. Mm. Good, good heavens, I mean, what a, what a claim and... Just again, buttering him up absurdly. Yeah, because Mrs. Berman has tipped him off that um, the Colonel has discovered this about his family history, and that he thinks it's a big deal. So straight away, Elwood is like, "Okay, I can use that." And when he gets back to his room, not only is it now completely shorn of any luxury, he's also got a new roommate, uh, a tall drink of water called Noll. Yes, it's, that's a lovely bit of casting because that guy. I mean, there's there's more to his character as we later discover, but he's you immediately twig him as the the sort of hapless sidekick, hapless nerd. He's he's going on about his his sort of high school sweetheart and how she's serving as well, and and Elwood. He's literally the couldn't be less like Elwood. He's 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 wholesome and sweet and devoted, um, and he's clearly been put there by the top sergeant to just drive Elwood mad by being everything he's not. He's very much the godbird to his Fletch. Yes, that's the one. Yes. Um, and he, he mentions that he refers to his um, his girlfriend by her, uh, almost by her name, rank and number. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and and Elwood, Elwood, Elwood says, do you salute her in bed as well? <laughs> yeah. The date goes ahead and so Elwood turns up at the Top's house and says, oh, hello Top, I'm here to pick up your daughter <laughs> and off they go and Top tries to follow them but he can't get into the club because he's wearing trainers yes <laughs> yes, I mean this is kind of where you start to see it's, it's almost um, weirdly sort of Police Academy-esque with Elwood as the sort of Steve Guttenberg Mahoney type character who is revelling in the chance to engage in this kind of Tit for tat war with this this new sergeant. You know, he kicked my TV. Well, I'm going to take your daughter out and I'm going to rub your face in it. You know, it's, <laughs> his his shamelessness at this point is kind of almost impressive. You know, he's he's not doing it behind the guy's back. He's doing it right in front of him and <laughs> daring him to to up the ante. It's funny you mention that actually because uh, Police Academy featured on a previous episode of Cinema Limbo. Uh huh. Um, and uh, I spoke very eloquently, if I may say so, in its defence. I think it's a very fine piece of work, uh, uh, the occasional gay joke notwithstanding. 
a an updated version with a seasoning of social commentary about recruiting new police officers from within communities because they're you know trusted faces rather than interlopers mm. but in, instead of that you have Imagine this instead as the updated version of Police Academy. <laughs> I, it, it did spring to mind more than once when I was rewatching it. It was like this is, you know, it's a hair away from being. For, certainly in the second act, where, you know, um, Elwood and the sergeant are kind of having this this tit for tat war of just escalating retaliations against each other and sort of um, humiliations they're heaping on each other. And it, it is it is like Police Academy. It's you know it's it's Mahoney um, against uh, what's his name. The, um, Harris. Harris. Yes. You know, it is that case. It's, it's, it's that archetype. You know, the 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 hot wire um, sort of grifter, fast talking guy against the stuffy stick up his butts authority mm. figure. I uh, I quite like the idea of uh, fantasy casting readings, where um, you wouldn't remake a film. You just have a staged reading of the original script mm. with new actors with. So sit it on stools with you know music stands with the scripts on and recasting buffalo soldiers with the cast of police academy <laughs> i think has has real possibility gw bailey as the top commandant uh well not commandant not um george gaines as the colonel because he's passed on yeah. but um it's that that kind of thing or even the cast or even the cast of buffalo soldiers doing the script for police academy <laughs> i mean yeah certainly that's sort of that um, sort of trinity of characters, you know, that Elwood, Berman, and and, um, and Lee, it is Harris, Lassard, and Mahoney from from uh, Police Academy. It is exactly the same dynamic between them all. So at, while they're at the club, Elwood tells Robin about his background, and he actually apologises her for putting her in the middle of this feud, and that it's it's not fair on her. Mm. But she kisses him and not gives him drugs. So I thought, oh right. <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of feel that could almost have been a turning point for him, you know. That's if she, if she had been genuinely dismayed, I don't think he would have completely changed his ways. But there's a moment there where you kind of suspect that maybe he would back away from from what he's doing, you know. Certainly with regard to to the sergeant. Um, but then she goes, "No, let's, you know, you know, uh, you know, wind my dad up all you want. Here's some ecstasy." And yeah. that basically just removes whatever brief flicker of, of conscience that Elwood was exhibiting and from then on it's just okay I've been, I've been given the thumbs up by my girlfriend now so yeah we're going for it um, so the following day um, first thing in the morning the top bursts into Elwood and Noll's room and says right full kit armory range five minutes everyone troops out there um, Elwood is forced to carry the M60 which <laughs> apparently Weighed an absolute ton, mm, and all the ammo for it as well. All the, all the magazine belts um, strapped around him. When um, they were filming, apparently they had very little difficulty getting hold of lots of guns. Okay. That fr- uh, that uh, sort of arrived from um, parts unknown. Mm. Um, so I think that, I think it's a real M60, and Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix Joaquin Phoenix really struggled with it. But they they set up on the armory range with a a large object that's covered in. Um, a tarpaulin. Mm. And Top explains that this is the prototype for a new kind of Russian tank. You will fire at it on the given command, and you will continue firing until another command. He pulls off the tarpaulin, and it's Elwood's car. Mm-hmm. His, his lovely Mercedes that he, he loves. And the fact that he is then forced to shoot it 
himself and it, it someone hits the petrol tank and it goes up in a fireball another note i've got here is establishment versus delinquent mm-hmm. um would you say necessarily that top is establishment or is he himself the delinquent part because he's going so far beyond what is acceptable yes particularly towards the end he's going it, it's become entirely personal. Yeah. It's no longer it's no longer about enforcing military discipline. It is now he actively wants revenge on Elwood. He actually is going to kill him. I mean, yeah. I mean, by the end, certainly. But I mean, even right from the start, I, I think you're right. I don't think he is the ideal embodiment of sort of military um, restraint and you know um, obeying the rules. He he bends the rules um, pretty much right from the start. He's he's Again, he's as much of a schemer and a um, a plotter as Elwood is. It's just he's doing it from his perspective of I must get these people out of the army. I must get these people, you know, out of my life. But he resorts to pretty much the same methods without any prompting, and and seems to take enormous pleasure in it. That's the thing. He, he he's not reluctantly forced to escalate his battle with Elwood. He he willfully does it and does it with a smile and a, you know, come at me bro kind of attitude. As he tells Elwood towards the end, um, uh, Robin says, and we, we see on um, his record that he did several tours in Vietnam, and he tells Elwood that, that his secret about Vietnam is that he absolutely loved it. Yes. He loved just going in and shooting a whole bunch of people and not worrying about it at all. So far, I, I think far from Elwood being a sociopath, the top is a a pure psychopath. Yeah, I mean, and again, that's that's part of the film's commentary is that the guy who, you know, in the traditional reading of this story would be the representative of, you know, the authority um, and the establishment. In in this, you know, he is a maniac and a, a more dangerous maniac because you know, Elwood would not shoot someone. He wouldn't hurt someone. Like no, he's not violent. Um, but no, that that scene where where Lee is basically saying, you know, you know, I loved Vietnam. The things I did, you wouldn't even believe. You know, you kind of think, well, you, you, in that moment, you believe him. You think, well, yeah, I can imagine you did. And that's it's a really scary moment because you realise that this has not been a you know a campus comedy esque prank war. It's been you know a dance with a very very dangerous man. You're. You're playing Dare with Jason Voorhees. Yeah, basically, yeah. Elwood really likes Robin. Mm. And um, he and uh, uh, Garcia are talking when suddenly Saad arrives in the uh, commissary and says that there's nothing in their usual hiding place. The um, the uh, cupboard where... What was the name of... Uh, McCovey. Um, uh, took his injection that ended up with um, his head on a table. Yes. And um, it's noted that Saad is a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. That he's a very angry, passionate vegetarian and he talks a load of rubbish about meat sitting in your stomach for six weeks while it rots. None of, none of which is true. No. no. But it's, it's the kind of thing that a guy like that would believe because it, it makes him feel stronger and more pure and, you know, he's he's... He's purged his body of all this stuff, and then the fact that he's also selling heroin almost is, you know, ridiculously hypocritical. But to him, he is pure, and he's just selling this filth to to other people who are weaker than him. 
Mm. But again, even though it's that could just be a little character detail, the fact that he's a vegetarian becomes very important at the end of the movie. Yes. All these, all these little, all these little Chekhov's guns are seeded throughout the film, and they all w- wind up firing in sequence. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, Berman, Berman is trying to practice his speech in a mirror and keeps getting it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you, you kind of feel very sorry for him in that scene because I mean he's he's already come across as a fairly pathetic figure, but it's it's that point you realise just just how pathetic he is as you see him preparing to because on the base this existence he's led he doesn't really come into contact with the rest of the military he's kind of in his own little corner and he gets on with it and it's fine and it's nice uh, but when he has to go to this dinner party with all the other you know the generals and the, the you know the top brass and you suddenly realize he's cacking it he's you know he's he's under massive pressure from his wife to impress these people and get a promotion and you realize he's got no chance he's, he, he does not belong well, he's uh, talking with the general, played by Dean Stockwell, no less, and um, one of the uh, other officers on the base, the Colonel Marshal of the infantry. Mm-hmm. And Berman tells his story about the iron bore, and he fumbles it, and Marshal effortlessly tops him by saying, well, when I read that I was in fact related to a former army chief of staff, I felt a real heritage about my career. I thought, oh, that's just squash immediately. All Ber- all Berman's sort of feelings of I can do this, I can do this. Is, this is, my, this is my, my ace in the hole. This is my, my trump card. Uh, that he's put it down, he's got a pair of twos or something. It's, it's crushing. <laughs> but, but, the, but the general sort of almost offers him a lifeline by saying, well, I'm not from a military family at all. And I don't think any of this heritage is worth anything. What's important is service, what you can do, what you're capable of. And the best fighters come from dirt because they want to get out of the dirt. They don't want to go back to it. Mm-hmm. So it's proposed that Berman just has this idea off the top of his head to have a war game of his supply unit versus the, in- versus the infantry. <laughs> like Postman Pat versus Action Man, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, his, uh, Miss, Mrs. Colonel later on berates him for it on the grounds that it's such an absurd idea mm. that he even has a chance that he's got this you know bunch of drivers and cooks and cleaners against you know soldiers who actually yeah. actual actual soldiers who know which way around the gun goes, uh, you know the, you know the pointy end of the bayonet goes in the other man that kind of thing. Uh, but the general also is old friends with the top, mm-hmm. of course. Which it's that it's like corruption right from the head down. Mm. And what's really quite alarming is because the uh, because General John Bell Hood was in the Confederate Army, the soldiers who are serving as waiters and stewards at the dinner party are all dressed in Confederate Army uniform, including. Including Stoney, who's black. Yes, yeah. And it's just that completely tone-deaf. The military is what matters. It never occurs to them that that is the wrong thing to be doing. As um, as the top says when um, Stoney's pouring him a drink, ain't you sick of being fucked by a white man? <laughs> Meanwhile, Noll is surrounded by Sard's MPs and has the stuffing kicked out of him. Yes, because they're looking to get revenge on... Um... On Elwood for the uh, the missing heroine, which we've already seen at the very start of the movie, you know, is this kind of the that head bashed into the table was the 
the, the spark that is finally starting to um, set things alight. Mm. Robin warns Elwood about the top, and um, that's where he tells her about his falling dream. Mm-hmm. And my note is it's on a psychological note, it's uh, it's self destruction, um, the the belief that something is coming that will end badly, mm. um, that sooner or later you're going to hit the ground. It feels like you're flying now, but it's all going to be over in an instant. So it's almost as though he's having premonitions, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, you, you, this is obviously how he lives. This kind of, you know, moving from one scam to another and cutting deals and taking advantage where he can. And you, you kind of suspect that deep down he's always known that he's on borrowed time and sooner or later something's going to go wrong. Some, you know, something is not going to come together in time and he's, he's going to end up, like you say, face, face first on the ground, metaphorically or literally. Mm. He gets back to his room and finds Noll having been beaten, mm-hmm. and he says, "It's you know, it's it's not safe to walk around the base late at night." And you think, "It's it, it's a military base that should it should be really safe." Yeah, g- given how many guns everyone has. And talking about it like it's you know it's a bad neighbourhood or something. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. I think that that all the military police officers are black, mm. because it's on the one hand. Oh, it's it's the it's the scary black man stereotype, which is a little bit queasy, but I don't think it's intentional. But on the other hand, it's it's like a reversal of the civilian world, where the the cops intimidate African Americans. Now the cops are the African Americans, and they're going to get their own back on everyone else because now they've got the authority to do it. And it's and it's the worst people. <laughs> it's the worst people always after the power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because obviously um, Saad is never going to get to be, you know, rubbing shoulders with sort of Lancaster and Marshall and the other guys. So this is this is his route to power. It's kind of brute force kind of power rather than um, inherited power. Noel joins um, the gang, effectively, mm. having, having been through his sort of baptism of fire. And um, while Stoney goes to check the stash point to see if the... If, if the heroine really is missing. Mm. But he opens the locker door and realises that it's been booby-trapped and there's a grenade inside that goes off and it kills him. Yes. Very sudden, very brutal. And that shocks Elwood into wanting to call off the whole deal. Mm. But the Turk says, this, this is not a game. If you don't come through with this, I will come after you and I will fucking kill you. I mean, he, Elwood used to be all small-time just, you know, buying and selling little odds and ends that he finds, but now he's dealing with, you know, enough heroin to kill Albania. Um, <laughs> you kind of, you kind of realise at this point that Elwood, for all, for all his, his sort of cocky confidence, has actually been spectacularly naive as to the to what he's actually doing. You know, it's, it's almost like he's seen this sort of, you know, the sideline in heroin dealing as, you know, an opportunity taken but never actually really twigged that he was dealing with some really seriously nasty gangsters to do it because he's been so sort of cosseted in this military world where yes there are rules but the boundaries are safe almost you know yeah and and that the death of stony kind of really brings it home to him that no this is you know this is not a, a cute little self-contained world anymore this is this is a you know 
this could end horribly and probably will mm. while they're at a civilian bar Sara and his men comes in and st- are on the verge of starting something very nasty they drag Noel into the uh, the gents and immediately all come out again <laughs> and last to come out is Noel pointing a gun at them <laughs> and a, f- a fight breaks out Noel gets very close to having a bullet in his head mm. when uh, Elwood shoots the wall as a warning what? shot. He shoots Elvis. He shoots Elvis. There's a, there's a kind of weird papier-mâché Elvis-type figure, and uh, yeah, Elvis gets a headshot. Well, I think because it's it's a, a German-owned bar, but trying to uh, accommodate Americans. So, and who's the who's the most famous post-war GI? Exactly. So Saad makes himself Elwood's partner in the whole deal, and they explain that. You have to eat constantly when you're cooking the opium mm-hmm. because the, because of the fumes in the air and keeping a full stomach, particularly with meat, counteracts the effects. Given that they're going to have to be cooking for hours on end and supervising the entire time, they're going to have to eat a hamburger every quarter of an hour. But Saad, of course, is a vegetarian, so he's going to have to make do with aubergines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was the moment where I kind of thought, is that true? I don't know. It seems, it seems like a weirdly convenient fact, but I don't know. I, I, I was really fascinated at that point to know, is that a real thing that people cooking heroin have to worry about? <laughs> I'm guessing it's not, but... To be honest, I, I should have looked this up and checked, but I didn't want a, my name to go onto a database. <laughs> it feels like something that probably would have been covered in, in Breaking Bad if it was true, because, you know, it's... Uh... But that's meth. That's not heroin. True. Yeah, I'm not, like I say, I'm, I'm clearly not experienced enough in the, in the world of class A drug. And also in uh, in Breaking Bad, they're always wearing containment suits and um, respirators. So, if if Elwood and his team had access to that, then it wouldn't be an issue. But they've just got to make do with what they can. Mm. So they go on uh, their exercise. They're they're guarding the nuclear missile silo, which is where the guns are stored, mm-hmm. and. Elwood knows that he has to bring the exercise to an end as soon as possible in order to be able to get the guns out to get them to the Turk in order to pay off his debt. Mm. So he and the colonel are sitting in a truck outside and the two trucks come... Ah, good. All the food for uh, for the day. Our breakfast and everything. Wave these men in. No, they don't need to show their passes. It's, It's fine. They're with me. And of course, as soon as they get inside... All the infantry soldiers come out and immediately capture the place, and it's it's literally over in five minutes. And it's it's also the oldest recorded military tactic in the, in the books, almost. You know, the Trojan horse. And it's it, it's, it's, it's falls for it immediately. That's the thing that's so sad that Elwood has clearly planned this to uh, to sell out Berman, but it wouldn't have worked if Berman wasn't so gullible. Yes, yeah. I mean, you almost suspect that he didn't really even need to plan anything. Berman was always going to lose instantly anyway. <laughs> it was, he was never going to put up a much of a fight. But uh, it was just sort of insurance to make sure. And, and then they have some, quite a nice scene of, now that the soldiers basically have the rest of the day free, they're, they're like hanging around the base, throwing a frisbee, throwing a football. He and Elwood and the colonel are just sitting on the grass chatting... And it's sort of 
sort of charmingly pastoral almost. Yeah, and, and Berman's character shifts just a little bit here. There's a kind of like a there's been a there's sort of anxiety in him throughout the whole film. And it's almost like at this point he realises that's it, I'm done. You know, I'm out of the army now. They're, they're not gonna let me stay now. And it's he's relieved. He's like yeah, it's... I don't have to worry about this anymore. Thank God for that. You know, it's he, he never would have left under his own steam. He never would have quit or resigned. But now that he's realised they're gonna throw me out, he's not angry, he's not disappointed, he's just like Oh good. <laughs> I can relax he's... now. He's just relieved. He now he can go off and he can buy his vineyard and do what he really wants to do in life. And it's it's quite charming. Mm. And just the idea and just seeing all the soldiers just relaxed and ha- you know, just having an afternoon off, throwing a frisbee, just this is this is what we're told military life is like. Mm. It's you know, the the camaraderie and the comradeship. And I imagine quite a bit of time that is what it's like but there's also a lot of you know drug ad- drug addiction and 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 selling cleaning products and insane sergeant majors mm. do you think that the film in in not in in that way but maybe in terms of overall tone and showing the very horrible with the the upsides of mercedes benzes and no speed limits do you think it paints a reasonably accurate picture of military life i mean with having absolutely zero experience of that i don't know but it it feels true it rings true that you know it's it's in a weird way it's um when people talk about making a film and everyone immediately thinks of the glamorous stuff and the excitement of filming when the reality is you spend nine hours of a day sitting in a trailer waiting to be called to shoot for five minutes and i think that maps probably quite neatly onto military life which is you spend a lot of time sitting around waiting to be told to do something um you know and often the thing you're told to do will not even be important unless you you know in peacetime it's basically just keeping busy keeping the machine ticking over um so yeah i mean there's there's obviously exaggerated massively exaggerated elements i don't think anyone has ever sort of driven a tank off the face on heroin and <laughs> but yeah the kind of the kind of ennui i guess the the kind of inertia that kind of just being stuck in place with hours right. and hours to fill you know and the fact that you're wearing a uniform almost becomes abstract yeah i mean i i'm not speaking from any experience but the film the way the film presents it you you don't think well soldiers wouldn't do that you you, know, you watch it and you think well of course soldiers would do that it's you know that's how they have to say same I drew a parallel earlier with Porridge, and there is, I think, a big element of the film that feels like it's set in a prison. Mm, definitely, yeah. You know, the same kind of hierarchies, the same regimented existence, but it's regimented for no... I mean, there obviously are reasons, but, you know, you, in peacetime, the regimented system just remains in place because it has to, because it's the army. There's no, There's no war to fight, so they're just... They're just following the routine until they're kind of called into service to do it for real. So, yeah, no, I can, I can definitely see that. So Garcia drives off to deliver the guns whilst the cooking setup is constructed in the basement of one of the buildings on the base. And, and another sort of specific plot point, they have to keep 
the boiling mixtures under 90 degrees Celsius mm. or, else, or else it explodes. It's not just under 90, it's, it, it has to be, if it's too cold... If it's too cold, then it'll just stop. Yeah, and if it's too hot, it'll explode. Yeah. So that's a kind of um, a sort of classically Hitchcockian device of, you know, here is the exact thing that mustn't happen that the audience now knows definitely has to happen. Well, the um, but with with the lower temperature limit, I think it's just saying, you know, if if we don't apply as much heat, the reaction takes longer and it takes longer. Which thought, well, that's that seems reasonable, but but yeah, but then above that, that it explodes. So we have to keep it just below the level where it explodes, so it does as quickly as possible, so that we can get all this dismantled before you know the <laughs> the officer shows up in the morning. They start their cook. Uh, they all tuck into hot dogs, and the TV's on as well. Mm. And uh, again, it's it's kind of an irrelevant plot point, but it's just a bit of background colour that the wall is coming down that night. Mm. So it's third of October, I think. Uh, I think that's the right date. Third of October, nineteen eighty nine, is when the, they actually started chipping bits off the wall and climbing all over it. Yeah. David Hasselhoff started dusting off his leather jacket. And... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's. I think it's kind of integral to the the point being made here is that you know with the wall coming down this whole way of life is coming to an end you know this is this has been you know this military base has been there for however many years and now it's no longer needed you know this is it's it's apocalyptic um in the sense that this world that they have inhabited that has been their entire universe is now redundant as redundant as they've been and it's it's the the kind of pointlessness of their existence is now made literal in their you know no matter what happens that whole that whole camp that whole base is is going to be gone i looked up on um google earth a while ago to see what happened to the base that i used to visit when i was living in germany mm. because my dad was on attachment to um not sure i can say what he was on attachment to but it was military things mm-hmm. and um we had access to the local American base, so we could use their their PX and rent videos and such. And um, I had a look to see what's there now, and it's a shopping centre. <laughs> but weirdly, they've kept all the street names. All right. So the shopping centre is on Cincinnati Strasse. <laughs> well, that's, that's weirdly nice, I guess. You know, a little mm. left a bit of a bit of a mark, even though the, the actual buildings aren't there anymore. All oh, the buildings are there. Oh, right, so it's the same building. <laughs> it's the same buildings, yeah. I thought you meant they just... demolished it and built a mall. Oh, wow, that's that's even weirder. Robin meets Elwood in the swimming pool, and she's on the high diving board. Mm-hmm. And she jumps into the water, and Elwood is clearly absolutely terrified. <laughs> but when she doesn't surface, he manages to pluck up the courage to jump in. Mm. And I, I see that as a moment of... Uh, denying his weakness of of faced with the one situation that he's genuinely scared of he's able to still go through with it and do the thing that has to be done mm. even in this case where it's acting on a a selfless emotional level because he thinks he has to help the woman who he may have well have fallen in love with yeah no, it's it's a it's a real kind of moment of growth for him. You know, he's it's that again. It's one of those things where you kind of think that 
if if events that follow on from that did not happen, would this have been the turning point where he changes? Well, meanwhile, uh, Sard's starting to wobble while the others are tucking into hamburgers, and he's and he's rambling about it being poison for your body as he's on the verge of keeling over from heroin fumes. <laughs> yeah. Noel walks into the uh, pool as uh, Elwood and Robin are reclining in a relaxed state. <laughs> and uh, he's weirdly shiftly, shifty. He walks out and then suddenly the top bursts in and smashes Elwood's face to the ground. Yes. And he tells Noel to, Sir, please take my daughter outside. Because it turns out Noel is from the Inspector General's office and has been planted there to investigate Elwood in the first place. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's um, like I said before, there's, there's, there's a lot more to him than meets the eye, and he's uh, a sort of snake in the grass. He's the... The grit in the oyster. Yeah, that kind of um, weak and feeble kind of, you know, oh, you know, oh, please don't, you know, oh, you're naughty, has, has all been an act, you know. Again, you know, he's, he's another character who is, who is not all they seem and who proves to be devastatingly adept at tricking people and manipulating people to serve his own agenda which is to get Elwood. But it's um, another subversion of the traditional military character type. We've had the base commander who is this sort of weak vacillating Mm -hmm. coward we have the sergeant major who isn't just tough, he's a murderer Mm. we have the uh, the scheming Bilko type who's a drug dealer and we have the uh, the milk toast type, who's actually a secret policeman. Yes, uh, he drags Robin outside just as commandos launch an assault on the uh, cook facility, mm-hmm. and Sard, w- waving his gun around, starts a firefight with them, <laughs> which immediately goes very badly. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not entirely sure if getting a sort of psychotic military policeman heavily armed off his face on heroin fumes I'm not sure where that that plan was supposed to go because it seems to be that was just always going to be a terrible idea well I think the idea is that if you get him on the heroin fumes he's going to be addicted and that gives Elwood a measure of control over him oh okay yeah I see you thinking more long term I was thinking more about where is that going in that night you know to me that is not a guy you want off his face Wandering around, even without the raid, you know, he, he does not seem like the kind of guy you would want to just get him stoned and hey, let's see what happens. You know, he's a, he's a kind of a chaotic element that could have easily been avoided. Well, if they uh, wind up all being uh, Saad and his uh, MPs, if they wind up all dying of uh, inhalation overdoses or what have you, um, then it would be a good way of. Um, Packing up the whole operation, I suppose, for uh, because you could blame everything on them. Elwood doesn't need to do any more cooks because of the money they've made from uh, selling what they've just produced. Mm. Um, so the whole situation gets sort of neatly wrapped up, and um, he could perhaps go on to slightly less uh, worrying uh, or dangerous income streams, or at the very least, deal with a new brunt bunch of MPs who might be a bit more amenable. Speaking of Saad's MPs is that where Idris Elba comes into the film? Is he one of Saad's MPs? Because I was watching trying to spot him. I think he is, yeah. I think that uh, yeah. Um But I, I couldn't spot him. He's obviously 
you know, not um, not at the forefront, but he's he is apparently one of them. Kimbra is his character name. All right. As the top explains how much he enjoyed Vietnam, he also mentions that he's the one who set the booby trap that killed Stoney, and he drags Elwood out to his truck while Robin is desperately pleading with Noel to explain that her father is going to kill Elwood. He is he is he is not the straight arrow that Noel thinks he is. And Noel does the right thing. He's the one character in the film who is even though he you know he's an undercover cop, which requires a certain level of snake in the grassness. Yeah. Um he does say okay on you know on that on that count you know fine because that's unacceptable mm. you know I, you know i i'm a follows the rules even if it brings him into conflict with the person he's supposed to be taking orders from exactly um garcia manages to get away uh, we see him <laughs> clambering out of uh, a vent and running off, and that's the last. That's the last we see of him. Yeah. Next thing we know, he's uh, hanging out with Ant Man. <laughs> he's fantastic in Ant Man. Yes. It's I've having seen him in a few other things. I realise what a great performance that is as he's playing someone who is slightly too stupid, mm. just slightly, but also has very refined taste. These very sort of offhand stories we hear about him going to wine tastings or gallery openings and and yet he is a very dim bulb yeah, I, mean, I mean talking about how you know maybe maybe ferris um ended up as elwood i, I could actually see garcia ending up as as the same character in ant-man <laughs> or it's certainly related to each other well there's yeah there's 30 years between them so god man. yeah yeah buffalo soldiers are set 30 years ago this year yeah so um with uh, the firefight carrying on in the basement, now the uh, the commanders are starting to get doped as well. There are uh, gas canisters there that are looking very v- vulnerable. Very vulnerable, yeah. Whilst, for plot reasons, <laughs> Elwood has been dragged to the roof of the same building. Yeah, it's this. This is the the big flaw in the movie that 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 happens. That surely the top would know that. The assault's going on in the basement. So, what's he doing on the roof? Is he going to frame the uh, his murder of Elwood as being a byproduct of? I guess he needs that? him on the scene of the cook in order to kind of prove that he was involved in it. Maybe. Yeah, I suppose so. It is kind of you kind of just have to take that on faith a little bit because it is. It does seem like an unnecessary flourish to. I mean, you could probably just throw Elwood into the middle of that firefight and. <laughs> You know, yeah, nothing's coming out of there. But no, it's you know, it's uh, it is a bit, a bit of a, a Hollywood flourish to go. I'm I'm the supervillain, and I'm going to take you to the roof and throw you <laughs> off. Um, but uh, just as he's about to, Noel pulls his gun behind him and and tells the top to to stop what he's doing. Mm. While in the basement, the last two gunmen stagger towards each other and knife each other in the guts. <laughs> <laughs> Which which is a great image of the of these two soldiers in silhouette, just as the last two men standing. It reminds me of. Um, did you ever see that cartoon Peace on Earth? No. About uh, how th- there was a terrible war and humanity all died out, and then all the animals inherited the earth, and it turns out the story is being told by Grandfather Mouse. 
Okay. To all the to all the little mice, and th- the war scenes are really horrible World War One imagery, and it ends with these two gas masked figures stabbing each other and falling and sinking into a pool of mud. Yeah, but I mean that whole shootout in the basement is basically, you know, every aspect of the military is kind of represented in there, and the whole thing just devolves into this sort of chaotic soup, um, which again seems kind of quite fitting with the the kind of theme of the military as always being like one heartbeat away from spiralling into, into chaos and bloodshed. Um, yeah, I think I think the, the sh- even the shootout itself has, you know, a kind of thematic purpose. It's not just here come the guys with guns. There's, you know, it's, it's everything, you know, all aspects of the military from the traditional soldiers, the MPs, Elwood's bunch... Um, the drugs, you know, everything is thrown into the mix and the result is just anarchy. And the the building goes up uh, like, like, you know, like a bomb. Like Die Hard, basically. Yes. And uh, Lee and Elwood are blasted out of the window and as they fall through the air, Elwood narrates that there is always war. There are no winners or losers. There are just survivors. And I think that points to how he sees himself. He sees himself as a survivor. Mm. Yeah, he's, he, he's the cockroach who survives the nuclear blast. He's, you know, he'll find a, a place to scurry to and he'll he'll find the crumbs that will keep him going till the next time. Because as they they fall, fall slowly through the air, they hit the ground with Elwood landing on top of Lee. Mm-hmm. And then sometime later, we visit a new military base where Elwood, beated and battered, uh, is standing in the office of his new commander, who looks every inch the buffoon, just like Berman. Yeah. And he says, oh, well, Elwood, I think you're going to enjoy it here in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) And and by the way, are you sure we need all these new cleaning supplies? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, sir. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, and again, Hawaii, you know, it's, it's... Just the idea is just moved to a, not just that he's carrying on, but that there's always another place where the military is just kind of waiting. It's just yeah. soldiers are just kind of shuffled around and moved over there, and there's there's always another place where there's just hours to fill, and of course that's where that's where Elwood ends up because that's what he's drawn to. And he mentions that um, his girlfriend will be visiting soon, so he and Robin are still together. Mm. Which is, is 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 quite sweet in a way because they're they're both awful people. I mean, they're almost sweet and upbeat ending for a character who has proven himself to be maybe not the worst person in the world, but certainly one of them. He's he has boundaries that the others don't have. Sard and uh, the top are brutal, violent people. Elwood is not that. El, he's out for himself. He's out to take what he can get. But he draws the line at actively hurting people. Yeah. Even if he's selling them heroin. Yeah. It's kind of weird that that is still framed as like the hero of the story that gets the happy ending. Is that, you know, well, at least he wasn't a psychopath. He's the least. And he's. The, the inference all the way through is the people. These soldiers get addicted to heroin because they have nothing else to do. Mm. Elwood's not forcing them, Saad isn't forcing anyone. He's not creating it's, the... He didn't create the market, he just fulfilled it. No, no the environment created the market. He's supplying the, the product. Mm. 
of you know, supply and demand. Um, I like the film very much. Um, I found it to be a, I think, quite realistic look at sort of the, the military mind of the time as a whole. Mm. And I think it's quite relevant now, now that militarism does seem to be very much on the rise, um, you know, with poppy fascism and and the, the expectation in the US that you have to thank mm. uh, members of the military for their service, which I find very strange. Mm. Um, and our brave boys and all this sort of thing that the tabloids foist on us. I think that we need more films like Buffalo Soldiers, some things you know that openly question this mm. and openly say it's not what you think at all. Mm. You know, they're not they're not all. You know, some of them may well be very honourable people, but a lot of them are going to be at Elwoods and Top Sergeant Lees and Sergeant Sards. Yeah, it's it's um, the the fact that it was sort of debuted in the Toronto Film Festival like literally days before nine eleven is almost too perfect because it the, the film is kind of like the, the military has never been the same since you know that kind of heightened war on terror mentality has never fully gone away since then and so this is almost like a weird time capsule of this was you, you know you could do this back then this was there was a time when you know these these entire army bases you know in, in West Germany you know Cold War you know and there was there was nothing to do. It was it was a, a war with no fighting, um, and and, and there, you know there have been films about like Jarhead was kind of about the a similar kind of boredom in Iraq, but that was actually they were actually in a war there. They were actually shooting. Um, the, and it, the thing that struck me about Buffalo Soldiers is that it's it's almost like the last Generation X movie because it's set. Kind of 1989, right before the kind of whole Generation X era of the 90s came in, and it was released just after that era ended. And the whole tone of the film, with that kind of weary, ironic um, sort of, there's a, a sense of, of sort of ennui. If you don't want to be pretentious about it, just a kind of what's the point, nihilistic. You know, none of this matters, so let's just get what we can. Uh, but not in a, a grasping '80s kind of way, but in a, you know, what else are we going to do? There's a, there's a resignation, I think, to the film, that feels very '90s, feels very Generation X, um, and you know the fact that it was then shelved until 2003, when it was almost like a time capsule out of its own era, is almost too perfect. It, it, it's it suits the story being told. It suits the subtext of the film to a T really that it, it got this this botched release because of a, a massive horrible terrorist attack well I noticed that at the end that the film is dedicated to Vanessa Langer um, who died on September 11th mm. and um, she was I believe the daughter of Robert O'Connor the um, the author of the original novel so it's kind of it's drawing a dividing line there almost that one can commemorate the tragedy of 9-11 without buying into the uh, the American military nightmare. Mm. No, I think I think the film definitely captures something of the, the national spirit at a very pivotal point, almost by accident. 
you know, entirely by accident, really. They didn't know that was going to happen, obviously. Um, but yeah, it kind of captures the complacency, I guess, of, of the, uh, the military mindset at that time, where it was just, you know, just hanging around waiting for something to happen. And then the fact that something did happen right as the film debuted is, is almost spooky, really. In a way, this movie kind of is the last word on the issue because it's not like anyone's been able to say anything since. No, I mean, and, and any kind of movie like this, you know, in that kind of sort of catch-22 um, mash kind of sub-genre that has been made since is inevitably informed by the fact that it was made after 9-11. So there's a, there's a weird purity to this film, which is a commentary on an event that hadn't actually happened when they made the film. Thanks to Dan for making time for this recording. He's currently writing three comic series, Surreal Horror Hex Loader, Gothic Western Frankenstein Texas, and Gaming Superhero Ella Upgraded, and you can find them all at gumroad.com slash zebracomics. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 60 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. However, until next time... Have a hot dog. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.